Welcome to Medic's podcast, our MRCS revision series. My name's Manal Ahmed and I'm a vascular trainee. And I'm Matthias Fahavari, a general surgical registrar. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, make sure to subscribe to us here on Spotify. And also follow us on Twitter at Medex Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, you can always support our channel on Patreon, the link for which is provided below. And keep in mind that this is used 100% to run the podcast and help us to deliver high quality content for you guys. And remember, you can always send us feedback on Twitter and we would love to hear from you all. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to be talking about hepatobiliary malignancies. Yeah, HPB malignancies. There's quite a few of these. I think there's pancreatic cancer, yeah. uh, cholangiocarcinoma, which is biduct-originated cancer, and we also got primary liver cancers as well. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. So, shall we start with pancreatic carcinomas? Yeah, I think so. That's that's probably the biggest topic out of all out of these three. Mm-hmm. Um, so, risk factors. Um, the best way to remember this is through a mnemonic, and we use um, DINES. So, smoking, inflammation, especially chronic pancreatitis. Um, nutrition, uh, especially diets that are quite high in fat and uh, meat-heavy diets, alcohol consumption, and diabetes mellitus as well. Okay, so dines, is that right? Dines, yeah. <clears throat> so diabetes, excess, alcohol, nutrition or fat-rich or enriched diet, inflammation, particularly chronic pancreatitis and smoking, these are the risk factors for pancreatic carcinoma. As we said, this one of those cancers that have got a very, very poor prognosis. Only approximately 10% of people who present with the disease are actually found to be operable. 90% of pancreatic carcinomas are doctor adenocarcinomas. As I said, they present late. There's usually an extensive local extension invading the vessels, particularly this SMA, the SMV or in fact sometimes the IVC as well. There's a huge, rich lymphatic supply to the pancreas, and these cancers tend to spread via lymphatogenous uh, spread or through the lymphatics, but also equally can spread by blood, which we call hematogenous spread. 60% of pancreatic cancers are located in the, in the head of the pancreas, or as HPB surgeons call it, HOP. 25% is in the body and 15% is in the tail. You can call the body of the pancreas as BOP and the tail of the pancreas as TOP. So how about the presentation? How do these patients present to clinic, Manal? Yeah, so the typical presentation is usually in male patients mm-hmm. who are above the age of 60, and they always present with, you know, the, the classical signs of obstructive jaundice. So there is jaundice, obviously, dark urine, pale stools. Um, and and can, it can often present with epigastric pain as well, radiating sort of boring right through to the back and is often relieved by sitting forward. Yeah, so we talked about it's painless jaundice and I think the pain is usually secondary to a, to an underlying condition that develops uh, when you have got a blocked bioduct, which is probably cholangitis or, or in fact, biliary colic almost, 
obviously secondary to this lesion. As we said, 60% of pancreatic cancer is in the head and they usually compress on the bile duct as well as the pancreatic duct, leading to pancreatitis or obstructive jaundice, which then can lead uh, into painful conditions. Yeah, and obviously with any carcinomas, you know, once there is sufficient increase in the size of the mass, you always find that these patients come in with anorexia, weight loss, malabsorption, and it's all because of the fact that there isn't enough of a bile outlet, and so there's, you know, the the food just isn't being digested. Yeah, or the same way as a gallstone, Mm. a cancer can also cause pancreatitis. Yeah. So the signs of uh, pancreatic carcinoma, the clinical signs, as we said, jaundice, you can feel an epigastric mass, the gallbladder can be quite enlarged and easily palpable, and uh, these are the general signs. And then you get more specific signs, such as the trousseau sign, which we call thrombophlebitis migrans. What is thrombophlebitis migrans, Manal? I believe thrombophlebitis migrans is these areas of sort of red patchy discoloration, and they can be quite transient, and they yeah. can happen anywhere over the body. Exactly. So they, the, the, the key here is that it can be anywhere in the body, mm-hmm. uh, almost like a skipping lesion. Yeah, yeah. Then you get splenomegaly. Uh, Secondary, that's usually secondary to portal vein thrombosis or portal hypertension. And because of that, you also, patients often get ascites. There's an important law, the Courvoisier law, which says that a palpable gallbladder associated with painless obstructive jaundice is unlikely to be due to stones. How about investigations, Mona? What sort of blood tests should we ask from our patient who presented with painless jaundice or epigastric pain secondaries to some underlying pathology caused by the cancer? Yeah, so in terms of investigations, we always start off with sort of, you know, least invasive to more invasive Mm -hmm. and always, you know, keeping in mind that bloods are important. So we would like to send off... Um, LFTs, uh, full blood count, to see if there's any uh, anemia. Yeah. And also uh, calcium level and CA19.9 as tumor marker. Yeah, that's right. So LFTs, full blood count, CA99, calcium or electrolytes, using these. Now, when you do that, if you've got a high suspicion and if you have got a patient who's jaundiced, you will definitely need to ask for some kind of imaging. Depending on the level of your suspicion, this could be an ultrasound or a CT scan. If you're worried about pancreatic cancer, you should probably ask for a CT scan. But if you think the underlying pathology is more likely to be gallstones, then an ultrasound scan is good in the first instance. Obviously, patient age and the factors we already discussed can help you to decide Uh, which investigation you're asking for. Once you have got a pancreatic lesion, this can be further characterized with an MRI scan or more precise to be with an MRCP, and you will definitely want to get an EUS or endoscopic ultrasound as well. Now, usually, as we said, this patient is coming with obstructive jaundice, so it's very likely you will need to relieve the jaundice first before you can do any operation, any treatment, uh, which includes chemotherapy as well. So the next step along the line will likely to be an ERCP, which will show us the anatomy, allow stenting, and also 
will be an effective way of getting uh, biopsies. In terms of surgeries, patients who are fit has got no metastatic disease and no local invasion of major vessels. Surgery is the preferred option. Depending on the location of the uh, cancer, you can do a Whipple's procedure, which is pancreatic or duodenectomy, in cases where the cancer is located in the hop, or head of the pancreas, or you can do a distal pancreatectomy if the lesion is in the body or the tail. Before you onboard your procedure, uh, particularly with Whipple's, which is traditionally and even these days most commonly probably done open, you will need to do a staging laparoscopy to confirm there is no peritoneal spread or no liver mats or other uh, spread that has not been picked up on preoperative imaging. The border between the head of the pancreas and the body of the pancreas is the portal vein, uh, or should I say the SMV, depending on how you look at it. The, as we all remember, the SMV joins the portal vein, yeah, exactly under the pancreas. So, distal pancreatectomy is best done laparoscopically, and this is uh, confirmed in the leopard one trial. However, Whipple's procedure, best done open, which has been confirmed in the leopard two trial, which actually had to end early due to excessive death in the laparoscopic group. This is a bit of an ammunition for your part B. Now, most of the cases, unfortunately, will not be operable. Approximately 10% of the cases that uh, fulfill the criteria uh, for an operation are now considered as curative disease. So palliation or palliative therapy has got a very important role in pancreatic cancer. First of all, as we said, you need to relieve the jaundice. Jaundice is an awful thing to live with. Patients complaining of a lot of itchiness uh, and just generally feeling unwell, they're prone to infections and all sorts of problems related to that. In patients who percutaneous and endoscopic stenting is not viable, uh, need to have a hepatic jejunostomy, and patients who's got gastric outlet obstruction also need a gastrojejunostomy. Very important that this is probably one of those uh, rare cancer types when you actually do not need to have a biopsy to progress onto surgery. However, you do need a biopsy in order to perform chemotherapy. Hence, if you find your patient is inoperable, you find uh, spread on the uh, staging laparoscopy or the operation is not uh, technically feasible due to local spread, you must remember to take a biopsy. The survival of pancreatic cancer, unfortunately, even with the operation, is poor. Uh, what is it exactly, Manal? So, because of the fact that by the time these are diagnosed, it's quite locally advanced, we find that the mean survival rate is less than six months from the time of diagnosis. Yeah, and that's at, correct. Yeah, and Very at five cool. years, only less than ten or less than two percent of those who have been diagnosed are still alive. I know that's very sad. Uh, so it's a very poor outcome. Unfortunately, there's another type of cancer that we need to talk about, which has again uh, not great outcomes, mind or better than pancreatic carcinoma. This is. Cholangiocarcinoma, or 
adenocarcinoma arising from the bile ducts. This is a very rare uh, tumour and it's got a very classical CT appearance. I always imagine this as little ants climbing up the bile ducts. If you look at a transection of a liver, you can see little bubbles or little ants centered around uh, bile ducts. And that's a classical image of the cholangio of cholangiocarcinoma. But what are the commonest factors of cholangiocarcinoma? So are we talking about low or high income countries? So let's start with high income countries. Okay, so the commonest cause in high income countries is due to primary sclerosis and cholangitis, mm -hmm. also known as PSC. Yeah. And this is then followed by chronic liver disease, uh, HIV and congenital liver diseases as well. Yeah, so I just must remind you all, this is very high yield on the MRCS, so you must remember all these. Commonest cause in the Western world, PSC, chronic liver disease, HIV and liver disease. Okay. Yeah, so PSC is an inflammatory condition that occurs in the bile ducts mm -hmm. and it is often associated with ulcerative colitis, which we see a lot of in, in high-income countries um, in recent years. Yeah, so the two is definitely linked together. I think there's like 80% of PSC patients got uh, ulcerative colitis or something like that. Am I yeah. right? Yeah, that's correct. And okay. patients with PSC have an overall 10 to 15% lifetime risk of developing cholangiocarcinoma. Okay, all right. What about chronic liver disease? So with chronic liver disease, this is usually associated with ongoing conditions such as hepatitis, mm -hmm. and that could be like, you know, hepatitis B or C, alcohol liver disease, and liver cirrhosis. Okay. And uh, as we've said earlier, HIV as well. Okay. So, what about low-income countries? What is the commonest risk factor for cholangiocarcinoma in those? So, slightly different to the high-income countries, we find that in low-income areas, the most common cause is parasitic liver disease, and okay. especially liver fluke. Mm -hmm. um, and this can always lead to sort of chronic inflammation, hyperplasia, and then that cycle of hyperplasia, metaplasia, dysplasia, and eventually liver, um, or sorry, carcinoma. Yeah, bile ducts, other than carcinoma. There's one more risk factor I must mention, and I don't think it's region dependent. Oh, what's that? It, it is cholecystocyst, oh. and it's very important because we all tuned on cysts, as a cyst, but I actually, unfortunately, seen patients presenting with cholecystocyst having a resection and then turning out that they actually had cancer in the cyst. cyst develops secondary to the pancreatic juices refluxing into the bile duct and you can imagine pancreatic juices were developed to digest meat or digest fat uh, for digestion in general if this goes into the bile duct and causes a constant irritation it's not difficult to imagine that it will turn into cancer yeah that's very interesting and so what is the pathophysiology behind the development of cholangiocarcinoma in patients with PSC? So the underlying cause of inflammation in PSC is autoimmune. Chronic inflammatory changes lead to obstruction of the bile ducts. That leads to impaired bile flow and local changes that lead to histological changes in the cells of the bile duct. Impaired bile flow leads to chronic inflammation, bile duct hyperplasia, then is followed by meta dysplasia, 
and unfortunately, ultimately, adenocarcinoma. I think if I remember correct, one of my friends were literally asked this question on part B. So remember, impaired bioflow leads to chronic inflammation, bioduct hyperplasia, metaplasia, dysplasia, and ultimately carcinoma. How about the presentation, Manara? So the presentation is often uh, patients coming in with progressive painless jaundice. And on examination, the gallbladder is often not palpable. Okay, so this is a jaundice without palpable gallbladder. In compared to pancreatic cancer or pancreatic adenocarcinoma, where the gallbladder was palpable. Yes. Is there any other symptoms? Yeah, so they come in with symptoms of malabsorption. So mm -hmm. there's diarrhea, mm -hmm. and so they complain of sort of like stools that are difficult to flush. Um, there's also weight loss, again, because of malabsorption. And uh, it really depends on, you know, the extent of where it is and how, how progressed it is at the time of diagnosis. And I think also about the location. Yeah. Because cholangiocarcinomas can be intra or extrahepatic. Intrahepatic is more rare than extrahepatic. There's a third location, which you call perihilar location, which is literally in the liver hilum. Now, unfortunately, this is the most common uh, location of cholangio cancer. It's about 70%. There's an eponymous name for it. It's called Kletchkin tumor. This involves the confluence of the bile duct and sometimes, occasionally, even the cystic duct as well. And there are about 20% of these cancers which actually affects the bile duct instead of the cystic ducts. So to summarize, we have intrahepatic and extrahepatic cholangiocarcinomas. Of these, the extrahepatic ones, especially the perihilar, yeah. are the most common type, making up 70%. That's right. Let's move on to investigations. Let's talk about the blood test or tumor markers that you may be requesting in a patient who you suspect developed cholangiocarcinoma. Yeah, so initially, obviously, you want to do your FBP, LFTs, UNEs. Okay, so routine blood tests? Yeah, routine blood tests. And then after that, you want to check specifically for serum levels of CEA, which mm -hmm. is carcinoembryonic antigen, and CA19.9. Okay, so I think both of these, uh, these tumor markers are traditionally or most commonly associated with different cancers. That's correct. I think we said CA99 is pancreatic, mm -hmm. equally can be raised in cholangio. What was CEA? So CEA is often elevated in colorectal cancers. Yeah, that's correct. So what further imaging or diagnostic tests can you do then? So as we discussed earlier in pancreatic cancer, you would like to get uh, either an ultrasound scan if you think your pathology is benign but if your suspicion is on cancer you need to get a CT scan in the first instance then in the next step you probably will get an MRCP plus minus an ERCP to relieve the jaundice similar to pancreatic cancer. When you request a CT scan you must remember you have to perform a full staging which will include a CT chest as well. During an ERCP or an EUS, you, your endoscopist will obtain biopsies. Now, these biopsies can be looked after by the histopathologist. And one thing that has came up in the exam a few times yeah. is immunohistochemistry. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, Manal? Yeah, so immunohistochemistry is 
quite useful in distinguishing between hepatocellular carcinoma and cholangiocarcinoma. And they use certain stains to identify um, which one it's more likely to be. So once cholangiocarcinoma uh, is diagnosed, what is the management? So cholangiocarcinoma, unfortunately, again, commonly incurable and inoperable because they affect both sides of the liver. However, when it is curable, it's very important to completely remove the cancer, which could be achieved by hepatectomy, or in some cases, and in some trials, with liver transplantation. Unfortunately, the overall median survival, again, is less than six months. However, as we said, the outcome of cholangiocarcinoma is slightly better than pancreatic and finally, we need to talk about hepatocellular carcinoma as well, which still has a poorish outcome, but probably the best out of these three. So hepatocellular carcinoma is the most common type of primary liver cancer. And that's very important because there are secondary liver cancers as well. There were approximately 800,000 new diagnoses worldwide. The highest incidence is still in Asia, but in many areas around the world, where traditionally we had low rates of HCC, such as the United Kingdom, the incidence in the last few years has been sharply rising. It's also predicted that this is going to continue. And the reason for that are and the underlying risk factors for HCC. What are those, Manar? Yeah, so the most common risk factors for HCC are hepatitis infections mm -hmm. and in particular hepatitis C, um, liver cirrhosis secondary to alcohol and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Yeah, which are, as we know, unfortunately uh, growing rapidly in our societies. Yeah, that's true. Um, obesity, which again ties in with NAFLD, yeah. type 2 diabetes, and aflatoxins. Okay. Often found in peanuts and peanut farmers. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Mm. Okay. So peanuts and peanut farmers, important epidemiology here. The commonest signs or symptoms that patients presenting with is an abdominal mass, large, palpable, right-sided abdominal mass, Abdominal pain, distension, often anorexia, uh, classical weight loss, and in some cases syncope and shock. And that is because sometimes these HCCs undergoing spontaneous hemorrhage secondary to rupture. Hmm. What blood tests will you request for these patients? So in terms of blood tests, we want to send off a full blood count, mm -hmm. liver function tests, and a specific tumour marker, um, alpha-fetoprotein. Okay, so we do the usual, plus AFP, alpha-fetoprotein. How about imaging? Imaging-wise, a CT of the chest, abdomen and pelvis is mm -hmm. quite useful as it helps to stage the disease. Okay. And an MRI can also be considered to have a closer look and more detail at the actual uh, hepatocellular carcinoma itself. Okay, and as we discussed at the pancreatic cancer, you don't necessarily need a biopsy, to proceed with operation. Same applies here. You do not need to have a liver biopsy in order to onboard your resection. However, if you can, you may want to do that. That is due to two reasons why you're not necessarily doing the biopsy. Number one, because as we said, these lesions can rupture and can lead into bleeding. Number two, they've got a very classical imaging appearance so it's not very difficult to diagnose them 
uh, on routine CT or MRI scan. Okay, and so what about the management then? So again, as for most cancers, the gold standard here is surgery. And our nodes completely removed. Uh, HCC has got the best outcome for the patient. Sometimes if you can't remove the cancer completely, liver transplantation is an option. If you can't do surgery, there are numerous ablation procedures developed for HCC. This could be radio frequency ablation with radio frequency waves, cryoablation with extreme cold or hot, and you can also deliver chemotherapy or radiation directly into the lesion. TACE, T-A-C. Radiotherapy is not a common option, but indeed is an option to treat HCC. How about the prognosis? What's the overall prognosis for survival? So the overall prognosis for this is quite poor, mm -hmm. and the five-year relative survival rate is about 18%. Okay, and how about if we break that down to stages? So depending on the stage, if it is localized disease, the five-year survival rate is about 33%. Mm -hmm. If there is regional disease, it's about 10 to 11%. Mm -hmm. And with distant spread or metastases, then we're looking at about 2%, really. Okay, but nevertheless, out of these three uh, types of cancers, HCC has got probably the best outcome. Now, there's one more hepatobiliary malignancy that we must mention here, and that is gallbladder carcinoma or gallbladder adenocarcinoma histologically. And that's an important topic because, again, this is high yield on the MRCS part B. So what is the most common type of gallbladder cancer? Uh, cholangiocarcinoma? That's correct. And that was a tricky question, Mona. I'm sure you've seen that coming. As cholangiocarcinoma is an adenocarcinoma of the bile duct or bile duct tissue, such as the gallbladder. The treatment of gallbladder cancer, depending on the depth of invasion, is either a cholecystectomy only or a cholecystectomy with an associated liver resection plus minus chemotherapy, depending on the nodal status. We also need to talk a little bit about pancreatic endocrine neoplasms or small pancreatic lesions that are not necessarily malignant in histological nature, but they can cause a lot of destruction uh, to the body. Yeah, so the first one we have is the pancreatic endocrine neoplasia, which occurs in, you know, between 30 to 60 year olds. It is often associated with the MEN1 syndrome. And we know that the other two components of MEN1 are parathyroid uh, tumors and That's right. pituitary as well. Is That's that right? correct. So the three Ps. Well, we will talk about a little bit more on our endocrine review. Absolutely. So the second one we have is an insulinoma, mm -hmm. and these are tumors which secrete excess insulin. The symptoms or the signs of it are often associated with hypoglycemia as a result of high insulin levels, and often confused um, sort of patients with stupor or in its most severe form get loss of consciousness. I think that's like a traditional or classic yes, question that we always is. see on, I even seen it on social media. Yes. I think they ask, is that a vicar who's sworn over the service in the morning or fared better after breakfast or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I actually, I had that question actually. In did you? Time. I did, I did. I thought they've taken it out, but <laughs> no, hey, there you there. go. 
So people with unexplained confusion on the MRCS getting better after eating is usually the correct answer is insulinoma. Mm. How about gastrin-secreting tumors? So gastrin-secreting tumors are known as gastrinomas, mm-hmm. and it's associated with something called Zollinger-Ellison, or it's sort of part of it itself, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, um, And so essentially what you get is excess secretion of gastrin, Yes, um, and that can lead to excess levels of chloride within within the stomach and within the body. Absolutely. So hyperchlorhydria, mm. which leading to refractory ulcer disease, what is refractory ulcer disease, Manal? Well, it's essentially ulcers which fail to heal with any treatment provided. Exactly. So you, somebody does an OGD, finds some peptic ulcers, prescribe high-dose PPI, then they perform another OGD and the ulcers are still there or maybe even got worse, despite being on acid suppression. That's what we call refractory peptic ulcer disease. So how about glucagonomas? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So glucagonoma increases the overall blood sugar levels in the body as it secretes a lot of glucagon, and this can lead to mild diabetes or symptoms of diabetes. Exactly. So the glucagon is the opposite of insulin. Insulin reduces the blood sugar, glucagon increases it. It's also associated with a specific type of rash, isn't it? Yeah. That's a characteristic blistering rash called necrolytic migratory erythema. So if you buy a computer, open your search engine and search for necrolytic migratory erythema so you know how these lesions or rashes are looking. There's also other types of lesions such as vipoma or somatostatinoma, Yes, and as the name suggests, it is what they secrete. Mm-hmm. So, for example, with VIPomas, you get secretion of vasoactive intestinal peptide, mm-hmm. um, which leads to watery diarrhea, hypokalemia, achlorhydria, and acidosis. Mm-hmm. And then there's somatostatinoma, which, as the name suggests, secretes somatostatin. Exactly. So, somatostatin is associated with GI secretions. Is that right? Yeah. So what does it exactly do, somatostatinomas, high somatostatin levels? So it inhibits glucagon and insulin release. Okay. It inhibits the pancreatic enzyme secretion. So it reduces all GI secretions. Yeah, it's causing status or status or, you know, stopping the secretion, yeah. And what are the clinical features of patients who has somatostatinoma? So as a result of the lack of insulin release, mm-hmm. patients often get hyperglycemia or symptoms of diabetes. Okay. As a result of the lack of pancreatic enzymes, there's overall malabsorption. So there's diarrhea. 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 Gallstones. Um, gallstones, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they all these lesions, if they're giving symptoms to the patients, they need to be resected. Mm-hmm. So this was our podcast on pancreatic or HPB malignancies. I hope you enjoyed listening to us. Until Until next time, keep keep pushing pushing yourself. yourself.